From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We are living experiments. Cars and planes and power plants mean carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is at 407 parts per million. We humans never have breathed air at this concentration before of CO2. Congratulations, we're doing things no other Homo sapiens have done. Oops. Today, fresh perspective on climate change, why the U.S. electrical grid is a source of hope, and the huge opportunities ahead for business. Our guests are an expert in corporate sustainability, the man who helped us Bill Gates got into the power business, and a former Colorado governor. Climate change went from not being mentioned in the 2012 presidential election to now being something that every candidate on the Democratic side has a plan on. And right now, Republicans in the United States Senate are caucusing to say, what is our climate solution? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The impeachment inquiry is obviously dominating the headlines. It eclipsed a storyline that's also of global importance, one we're going to dedicate the show to today, climate change. You'll hear what I think are some fresh perspectives on a well-trodden topic, like what a tremendous opportunity climate change is for business to eliminate waste Also, the role nuclear energy might play in reducing carbon, even though economics and public perception make it difficult. And we'll discuss a piece in The New Yorker that raised hackles, asking what if it's time to stop pretending we can prevent this. We recorded the show in front of an audience, our hosts, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Let's meet our guests. Bill Ritter was Democratic governor of Colorado from 2007 to 2011. He made renewable energy a keystone of his administration. Ritter then founded the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University, where he works with government leaders on the state level. Governor, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to see you again. Catherine Greener of Boulder has spent much of her career focused on sustainable business. She's the founder of Greener Solutions Incorporated. Previously, she led environmental affairs and sustainability for Zantera Travel Collection, a travel and hotel firm. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. I'm happy to be here. And Lee McIntyre is past president and CEO of the global engineering firm CH2M Hill, based in Englewood. He also led TerraPower, co-founded by Bill Gates, which develops nuclear reactor technology. McIntyre has worked in oil and gas as well. Lee, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Here's how the New York Times summed up the recent climate summit in New York. Despite the protests in the streets... China made no new promises to take stronger climate action. The United States, having vowed to pull out of the Paris Agreement, said nothing at all. A host of countries made only incremental promises. I I guess I'd like to have you reflect on this moment. Governor, is it a watershed or is it more of the same? Well, I think there's really a different conversation if you want to be somewhat optimistic And it's not looking at the international picture where the United States was a leader in Paris and was able actually to bring China and India along with national declarations that they were not really probably willing to do two years before. You know, we had a different leadership role then. And so that is bleak. The international picture is pretty bleak until the United States gets back in the game. Domestically, in the United States of America, the emissions picture is changing and maybe not radically enough, but it is good news in the power sector, 
90% of the coal that existed in 2010 or 2011 will not exist in 2035. So we're going to see a dramatic change in emissions from the power sector. And what it's replaced with will matter. What we, what we choose, renewables and natural gas, some combination, is likely what it's going to be. But we are a country who has seen our emissions from our power sector reduced and really alone in that respect. So that's good news, right? That's different than the New York Times looking at this and saying, this is really bleak. And actually, I think there's some progress in China, there's progress in India, but if your construct is the international dialogue that once was led by the United States, where we are now silent, that gives you an air of pessimism in something where there's otherwise some pieces of good news domestically for us in the United States. Catherine, is this a watershed moment or more of the same? That's a great question. And I can look at it only from, I guess, my lenses. When, as a problem solver, if there's a convening of individuals not solving problems, I'm not going to keep looking to them for solutions. I feel like you're speaking, <laughs> perhaps, of elected officials. Um, well, you know, I think it's also any entity that is not addressing this as an inflection point of innovation. There is so much going on at the individual level, at the entrepreneur level, um, and at the activist level where there are solutions. And I'm going to go to that heart space instead of a head space that's not solving solutions right now. Who has your attention? Who's doing that? Well, if you're under 30 years old, you have my attention for the most part. An individual came to my door. He was probably in his late 20s. And we were talking about climate change. And he says, I am choosing not to have children. And that had to be the 20th person of that age who said, I'm choosing not to have children right now because I can't bring a child into an unknown future. That has my attention. That level of commitment and passion will lead to ideas and solutions. Is that the right choice? Not having That's children? That's a personal choice. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't say if it's right or wrong. But when I was of that age bracket, how many people in this room, when they were in their late 20s, says, nah, I'm not going to have kids because the world's too messed up? We might have had other reasons. Hands did not go up in this room. And that is a common conversation right now for people under 30. Lee, is this a watershed moment? Well, uh, if you're talking about the uh, conference in New York, I thought a more interesting moment was really the IPCC report that came out. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's uh, loved by the people that are for reducing climate change and people that aren't think it's a hoax, which is really disappointing that we have to have discussions on scientists, not on the value of the report or the data, which is where we should be arguing and debating, but there are hoaxes or they're brilliant. That's really sad. But it was very interesting. I actually read it. And I found it was very interesting. It kind of changed my mind on a couple of things because it talks about the oceans and the cryo areas, the frozen areas. Let me backtrack a little bit. I've been, in my talks lately, I've been explaining the difference between global warming and climate change to the room, saying there's two different things. One is global warming, and it's really clear that it's happening. And then you can debate why and all that. And then there's climate change, which is sort of uns uncertain we can really debate that part of it, and the models have been working on it, but there's two different things. So what I learned from the report today is that these two things really affect our climate, are gonna affect our climate going forward. 70% uh, of the world's covered by oceans and so on and so forth. 
And so I wish we could just start over on this discussion and just say, okay, these two things are really going to affect us, and why are they heating up, and why are they melting, and maybe we could do something about it, have a scientific discussion on it, instead of we're kind of buried in this fossil fuels and humans have nothing to do with climate change. Oh, yes, they do. It's sort of a spiraling down discussion. I wish we could say the, the frozen areas and the oceans are really going to affect us. Why don't we look into that and see what, why they're doing that? So that came to me today. Governor Ritter, after you left office, you decided to focus on energy policy, helping states craft laws that encourage, quote, America's transition to a clean energy economy. And you have a pretty specific focus on the energy grid, the thing we rely on when we plug in our toaster. I gather that you anticipated working with conservatives who are generally wary of regulation. I want to know how you have made inroads with climate change as a bipartisan issue. Yeah, first of all, the, the magic there is working with states. Uh, we've done almost nothing with Congress where I think the partisanship has been intractable. And at the states, it's, it's pretty different. You know, even before the 2018 elections, there were several Republican governors, states where we were working in with the center, because that's what we do. We work with governors, legislators, utilities, utility commissions. But there were several Republican governors who sponsored and passed clean energy legislation. Uh, Nevada, Governor Sandoval, Governor Snyder in Michigan, Governor of Illinois before Pritzker, uh, the governors in Maryland and Massachusetts, Baker and uh, Hogan, they're all Republican governors. All of them sponsored some kind of clean energy legislation. We run a legislators academy and we have for a few years now. We get funding from the MacArthur Foundation. We're adamant about having Republican legislators there. So this other group that I'm part of, the Energy Foundation, we fund this conservative energy network in America so that conservative can talk to conservatives about clean energy policy. And, and they were very instrumental in those places I'm talking about, in Nevada, in Michigan, but also in holding back some things in Ohio and South Carolina. How does a discussion about energy among conservatives contrast with an energy discussion among Democrats? You've been in both. Well, interestingly, it's less about climate change. And it's a lot about markets. And, you know, part of the mantra from conservatives is we want the market to operate. Well, the electricity market's been largely regulated since the early part of the 20th century. And so you have to get past the fact that it, by nature, is a regulated market. But anyway, if you don't talk all that much about climate change, or maybe not at all about it, and say, well, here's the deal. If you look at the levelized cost of producing coal without even accounting for the cost of carbon in the flu stack, and you compare that now to wind, to solar, to natural gas, you are non-economic if you're producing energy from coal. Almost anywhere in the United States, that's true. You're so losing money versus those renewables. You are losing money. Renewables or renewables and gas, some mixture of that. Uh, the Navajo Generating Station is 25 years before the end of its useful life. It's in Page, Arizona. It's a major, maybe the biggest coal-fired generator in America. They're shutting it down 25 years early, Ryan. And it was four utilities that had a majority ownership that made the vote to do that. And what they said publicly is that they would lose 100 to $125 million a year running coal-fired generation instead of some mix of solar, wind, and gas. And interestingly, they made that decision without there ever being any price put on carbon. 
What is the picture in Colorado with coal? Well, XL provides power to about two-thirds of all the people of Colorado. They have decided to reduce their emissions from 2005 by 80% by 2030. They already had made decisions about retiring coal early to plants in Pueblo. And while there is still coal-fired generation in Colorado, I think it's a difficult future for coal-fired generation. Tri-State is going through their own process now, in fact. Tri-State provides energy to many of the rural electric co-ops, so the the smaller communities in Colorado. Independent power provider for co-ops, and they have a pretty heavy portfolio in coal. Uh, They they buy a lot of renewable power, uh, hydropower, but they know they have a heavy position in coal, and they're looking now at what that should mean. There's a real likelihood coal-fired generation in Colorado will go away altogether in the next 15 years or so. And so it's tough, right, because we have coal-dependent communities that are suffering because of this, but it is likely that it's going away and going away altogether. And in Colorado, is it the economic drivers? Is it the customers are demanding this? Is it both? I think there's some combination. So we had a big legislative year in Colorado where the Polis administration signed into law what they call a climate bill, and there is a desire to reduce our emissions across the sectors by 50% by 2030. What does that mean across the sectors? All sectors, the transportation sector, the built environment, the industrial sector, and the power sector. And the deal is they're going to ask more, I think, of the power sector than their 50% because it's going to be really difficult to get the same kinds of reduction from the transportation sector or even the industrial sector. And so you don't want to ruin the economy in Colorado, but with that kind of a focus on reducing emissions, there's a real need in Colorado for the power sector to look at 2030 and understand they got to get beyond 50%. And Excel, like I said, is going to go to 80%, but I think you're going to see most of the power sector in Colorado think about their 2005 emissions and try and get to some big number like 80% reduction by 2030. I wanted to comment on coal real quick, too. I, I agree with uh, what the governor said. Coal isn't high on my priority list anymore because, I, you know, I think it's going out in the U.S. and some parts of Europe is going out of, out of business. And by the way, I think coal ought to get a medal because coal made this country very rich because we've had incredibly cheap electricity for all of our lifetimes. And before that, first it was hydro, then it was coal, and now it's kind of switched to gas and and renewables. Uh, So coal is going away. Lee McIntyre, former CEO of CH2M Hill, the global engineering firm based in Englewood, and former CEO of the nuclear reactor company TerraPower. Our show is dedicated to climate change today. During Climate Week, we recorded a conversation at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science with some big thinkers on the topic, Let's hear more now from Catherine Greener of Boulder, an expert in sustainable business. I understand you use an expression, the only person who likes change is a baby with a wet diaper. It's a Margaret Mead quote. A Margaret Mead quote. (laughs) Yep. Have you found ways to get people, business, excited about change in the face of climate change? So if you think about change as an opportunity... You know, how many of us really enjoy writing a long memo on a typewriter? Now, do you remember, I'm looking, when we first had word processors? Oh my gosh. You know, when you were able to spell check came into our lives. 
we look at that typewriter now as a relic on our shelves, but we didn't hold on to the typewriter business and we embraced the change because it had benefits for our lives. So when I work with companies, I show that they have an opportunity to innovate. And I usually start, and I, and I come out of the industrial sector and I love manufacturing. And back when I started looking at the world this way, it, they called it just-in-time manufacturing, and it became Lean and Six Sigma. They named it all sorts of really cool things. But we identified waste. And waste is expensive. As a business owner, you pay for waste, and you pay for it usually more than once. And I started to think about how to apply this to this thing called sustainability or environmentalism and realize it's the same when you pay for waste. So when I work with business owners, and I don't have to get into the conversation of man-made climate change or anything like that. It just says, let's start from an efficiency perspective. Efficiency right now can be incremental, and I'd argue we don't have time, but I think we can all start where we stand today and eliminate the waste, eliminate waste in our lives, in our operations, because it's unprofitable. Where do you often see waste? Like, what's the pattern? <laughs> As an industrial engineer, unfortunately, it's pretty everywhere. Um, I ask my husband when I'm like, they need to turn off 30% of the lights in this restaurant. They don't need it. And once you start to see it, you do see it everywhere. You ask, what do we no longer need? You ever like drive through an urban environment and everything is lit up at night, even if it's a dark sky compliant? Like, really? I don't need to see that logo at 2 o'clock in the morning. But we're so used to it now in our lives that we don't think about how can I do this differently? Why do I need this? And, and to start there, and I work with businesses and, and you can do a walk, I've taught employees to do a walkthrough and to see where this waste is in their operations. Everything from double handling, extra inventory. Wait, double handling like, of, 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 of material Of material goods, sorry, I'm like slipping into my manufacturing speak. <laughs> but you start to see in the operations, you know, who doesn't need this? Why do we do this? And just by asking these types of simple questions, even at the shop floor level, I've uncovered up to 30 plus, I'll just call it 30 plus, cost of goods sold just looking around there as an opportunity for improvement. So you think about that, but in any type of operation, whether it's your kitchen or your living room, or it's a manufacturing operation or a warehouse, 30% is a lot. That's a lot of an electricity bill, a water bill, you know, if you start to think about that, so you dial it back. If we all started to do that from a decarbon, it leads to decarbonization because as we're transitioning in the energy, if we all demand less, then the renewable has an opportunity to supply. You know, I look at it as a simple seesaw, and there are things that we can all do to reduce the demand side of that seesaw. And so when I work with business owners, I say, here's an opportunity. Oh, and by the way, it saves you money. What you then have an opportunity to do from decarbonization, and I throw efficiency under that, is then to move and work with them and say, you have an opportunity to innovate. What can you do differently that your competitor has been thinking about? Let's make it better from a marketplace. Can you make a superior product? Can it lightweight from a transportation, reduce the cost? Start to say, where is the space that you can own it? And the last part I say is, what can you inspire? What can you communicate? Because, Ryan, I think as you pointed out, this whole thing called climate change is now in the news. And people want brands that start taking a stand. 
It's part of the story that you can tell investors Absolutely. or customers. Well, you can start to say it's it's if you're um, publicly held, there is an investor opportunity to engage around this. You have an opportunity to tell a great story. And if you've logged into CNN in the last 48 hours, Patagonia has a beautiful campaign that they're doing this where it just says, you know, you think it's a NGO that pops up and it says here, text this number, climate, and I think it reaches out to your legislator and then it just says Patagonia. That's it. And it's it just simple and it says my brand is taking a stand. You're going to see more and more of that in the future. Tell me about your email signature. There's a countdown <laughs> in it. <sighs> Today is 3,666. I'm not superstitious, but it did creep me out a little bit when I wrote it. You don't like those three the sixes six, in a row. Three sixes when I'm speaking about climate change. So um, on October 8th, 2018, we referenced the IPCC report that came out, which said that we have approximately, at that date, almost a year ago, 11 years to avert, not to solve climate change, but to avert the worst catastrophes of a 1.5 degree C temperature raise. Okay, that sounds pretty bad. So I was giving a, a talk in May and I said, so how many days is that? And so I, I counted, I said, all right, because you can do anything on the internet. And I said, how many days is it from today to October 8th, 2029? Because that's when the clock rolls over to zero and we ran out of time. I said, hmm. How many days is, then it was like 3,800 something. I said, how long ago was that? Like what was happening 3,800 days ago? And when I did it in May, hmm. it was the first inauguration of Barack Obama. I thought that kind of felt like yesterday, but, um, or maybe not. But then I said, hmm, what else was happening 3,800 days ago? Well, that was when Sully landed the plane on the Hudson River. We are now approximately equidistant from those events to that countdown from the IPCC report. So every day I change my footer. Sometimes I do it manually. I usually do it in my settings. But it gives me a sense of focus and purpose and priorities that says, am I impacting this? And am I making the most of my workday as I impact this? Even if it's something little, like riding my bike in the rain to my meeting, which I've gone to wet a couple times. Will the globe be <laughs> safely landed in the Hudson, by the pilots. There's a little bit of a metaphor there, I think. We're all pilots in this landing. Catherine Greener, founder of Greener Solutions Incorporated in Boulder. Her expertise is sustainable business. More from our climate panel in the next half hour. What role should nuclear energy play in a carbon-free future? And was writer Jonathan Franzen right? Is it time to stop pretending we can prevent climate change? I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Big thinkers today on climate change. Let's rejoin our panel, former Colorado Governor Bill Ritter, now the head of a green energy think tank, Boulder sustainability guru Catherine Greener, and our third guest. Lee McIntyre, you're the former CEO of global engineering giant CH2M Hill and of TerraPower, the nuclear reactor company co-founded by Bill Gates. You've worked in engineering and energy for much of your career. 
including design and construction for oil companies. I'm particularly interested in your perspective on nuclear as it relates to climate change. What do you think is missing from the conversation? Nuclear is, the reason Bill Gates went into nuclear, it wasn't because he was a fiend of nuclear or very interested in it. He was trying to solve poverty. He was giving vaccines to people that were living in squalor, in his words. And he said, I give them a vaccine, $900 million a year of vaccines. And I find that they're still in squalor and they catch something else, uh, is the way he put it. So Mm -hmm. he said, I decided we needed to lift 2 billion people out of poverty. What do you need to get out of poverty? Well, you need a little bit of electricity in his, in his mind. And he calculated you need 3,000 kilowatt hours a year of electricity so you can have a light bulb, so you can read, so you can get going, you can f- uh, charge your phone. And so he looked at all the options, and he was really looked at renewables first. And he just his calculations were, and he had some help with it, he didn't think you could get to renewables across the planet, 2 billion. The US is different, we're rich. But across the planet, you couldn't scale renewables fast enough. Uh, and renewables aren't perfect. They have some downsides to them and some costs that are yet to be recognized, I think. So he decided he couldn't do that. So he said, how about nuclear? And somebody said, well, nuclear has these five social issues against it, headwinds, as he called them. One is waste, nuclear waste, uh, risk of proliferation, where you can get some plutonium and build a dirty bomb or a clean bomb, um, a safety huge safety, Fukushima, Chernobyl kind of issues, cost, and then fuel security. Where's the fuel come from and all those kind of things, which they all interrelate to each other. Now, it's fascinating to me that in the face of those five items, none of which individually is small, Bill Gates says, charge on. Well, the way way he said it is he looked at the techies in the room and said, solve them, solve all five of them, and then walked out. Because he's the techie. He believes technology is the number one solution to everything. You always look to technology, and he's a believer in it. Politics confuse him, in his words, not in my words. I think he's pretty got pretty figured out. So he said, you solve it, and the company did. We hired a bunch of nuclear physicists, which theoretical physicists, by the way, they're all in their 30s, under 30. After a time, you're 30 years old, you're burned out, and have to become applied engineer. Hmm. Newton did all his work when he was 26. Uh, <laughs> Einstein did all his work when he was 24. So nuclear should be a part of the mix, in my estimation. Now, it um, should be others. a part of the mix. You say wh- you talked about it being able to lift people out of poverty. Why is it important in the face of climate change? Well, that was sort of, sort of a byproduct of it, really. Because What he asked for was an energy that would be clean. And nuclear is one of those, as are the renewables that we've been talking about, solar and wind. But nuclear is clean, no gases. Uh, there is a carbon footprint to nuclear, but there is for wind and solar also. So you have to calculate that in. But you have to fabricate the plant. It's steel and concrete, so it has a footprint. But when it's under, under operation, there's, there's no uh, greenhouse gases. He likes that too. He's very, you know, he was at Paris, so he cares about it. But he started with poverty. That's how we got into it. That term clean, I think if you asked 10 people on the street, is nuclear clean? Nine of them would say, no, it winds up with waste in my backyard. That, that's what you were up against. That's right. That's the social issues. So he said, solve that. So you don't, have to, you don't have to buck that. The people that are anti-nuclear use that, waste, safety, those kind of things, to kill it and to close it. The actual, the real challenge to nuclear really in the United States right now really is cost, capital cost. 
costs about five times what it does to put a gas plant in, for example. However, at 60, 80 li years lifetime, it all, it all comes out in the wash because it's very cheap to operate. Has Bill Gates managed to do this elsewhere successfully, address all five of those concerns, and bring power to people who otherwise wouldn't have it? He, well, we haven't, haven't built a, a reactor yet. Our main tactic was to go in a joint venture in China. Uh, we had government approval here and government approval there to go in, had a deal cut and negotiated and celebrated to uh, form a joint venture to create this reactor. What the, both governments liked about it was, since it was proliferation proof, you could export it because you wouldn't have to worry about a bad guy getting in and, and uh, stealing plutonium and making a, a dirty bomb. So that was going very well until the U.S. government shut us down, said, we don't want you to work anymore in China. I'm not a politician, so I don't know if it was residue from the trade war or negotiations or what, but it's sort of on the table now. They're still working on it. It'll be ready at, at some point in time. I'll say that President Trump is trying to revive the U.S. nuclear power industry. Uh, in July, the White House shared a memo that demands, quote, a comprehensive review of the entire domestic nuclear supply chain. And the memo says the U.S. imports approximately 93% of its commercial uranium. Uh, Governor Ritter, what are your thoughts on nuclear? Is, is this a part of the conversation that you hear among the states? I think Lee was right in saying the big impediment is cost. So at the state level, states that have looked at nuclear, there have been a variety of approaches. California says no new nuclear. It's in the legislation in California. Arizona has the biggest nuclear facility in the state, and they're doing everything they can to preserve it because it's 1,500 jobs. But over time, they're probably going to have to subsidize that power. If you compare it to the other kinds of power that's there, Illinois passed clean energy legislation, subsidized nuclear, and then New York passed legislation and subsidized nuclear all as a part of it because of its expense. They were way into cost overruns at the very beginning. It took a billion dollars just to study the Georgia facility they were going to build, and so they, they ended that. Talk, they ended construction costs. Yeah, talking. construction costs after, not, not operations. after Fukushima. But they're still building a nuclear facility. There's, there's one nuclear facility, I think, being built in the United States in uh, Georgia. It was South Carolina that they, they shut the other one down. And so, you know, there's going to be the likelihood of new nuclear. But I was on this National Academy of Sciences panel with some really good nuclear scientists and people who understood the industry. And I think, you know, what they would say is as long as there's not a price on carbon, nuclear has a real disadvantage to natural gas, like a really serious disadvantage, especially if you look at a 20 or 30 year investment horizon. But there is also a real social license to operate issue on the storage issue. And all of the nuclear waste in America is still stored on site. We have Yucca Mountain that was built for the purpose of storing it. But I, I tell you, as someone who's a native Colorado, and there are people in the state that will lay down on I-70 before a truck with nuclear waste pass through our corridor to take something to Yucca Mountain from some other part of the country. So I think there is still what you described as, you know, nine out of 10 people. I don't know what the number would be, but I do think if you look at the cost issue, if you look at the social license to operate, it was interesting, uh, the clean power plan, you know, when the Obama administration came out with that, they did not include nuclear as a pillar for decarbonizing the economy. And partly that's because they had a 2030 target. Your first plan was gonna be due at the latest in 2018. You could 
did not permit and operate a new nuclear facility in that 12-year period, so you couldn't use it as a state implementation plan to hit your target. So all of those if you, are part of the mix. Would you have used it if you could have? I think nuclear is a part of our future. It's about 20 percent of our power now. And, and I, I think that if we decarbonize over time, if we're serious as a nation about it, serious as a world about it, that nuclear is going to be a part of it. But uh, there's a lot of people who still talk about different technologies than sort of the present cool water reactor technology. And I think that, I think, is part of the hope that there is something that could be both politically sold to the people of this country and also when it failed would not fail catastrophically to the extent it failed. And, and those are all things that I think are still in the mix. We do some work in Rwanda from CSU, mm. so I know a lot about it, and I lived in Zambia for three years, a lot about people without any power at all and the differences in their quality of life when they have no power into their home or into their community. And if you could solve that through nuclear, that would help. But I also think you that's central generation where you're going to have to build a bunch of transmission lines, and that may not be the solution for a big part of the impoverished world either. I, th I think we've determined that nuclear is not as sexy as a windmill, yeah, or renewables. So I agree with that. But the, the point here, of course, is that it's one thing to build a plant. It's another question, how you get the power from the plant to the people. Uh, and that's no small question. But that's true with renewables, too. That's a challenge. The wind doesn't blow in populated areas, so... So it's a challenge. Yeah, it depends on how big of a problem you're trying to solve. If you try and solve the whole problem, yes. But in parts of Africa, what we're working with are microgrids, solar panels, fairly cheap batteries. They have their own issues. Um, there's no doubt about that, but it still can be 15 or 16 hours of power where there's productive uses in communities that have zero power right now. Uh, before there's a nuclear solution for them, there are things we can do for impoverished places around the world that actually can make some marginal and I would say a significantly marginal difference. I agree. Catherine? The governor brings up a really good point about our opportunity to innovate and reinvent everything. Like we make power in really big, well-constructed plants and then we ship it really far places. But what we're seeing with technology is the opportunity to create the power where you use it. And all that waste, whenever on that summer day, if you were riding your bike as a kid and you heard all that buzz along the power lines, along the road, that's waste. That's lost energy along the way. If you have an opportunity to go up to Trail Ridge Road, Rocky Mountain National Park, there's an, an example of a microgrid. Working with the Park Service and Terra Parks and Resorts, put in a 64 kilowatt solar panels. You can see it if you come up Fall River Road. This was a firm you worked Th for. This was the company I worked for, Zantara Parks and Resorts, but working with the Park Service, we had an opportunity of a microgrid at 12,000 feet. It was still tied, so it's grid tied to the generators, but it was meant to work, so there was no transmission, just an opportunity to show that the power was being made when the sun was shining, the sun shines a lot. It also has involved battery storage. We haven't really talked about the opportunity for batteries, which is an important part of creating the power where it's made and using it. And it's a smart inverter, so it knows when to use it from the solar panel, when it's, it might be a storm up there and we still need a little bit of generator if the batteries are tied up. But it's an opportunity to rethink how power is made and used, being back to that supply and demand. And I think that there's a real opportunity in these remote locations, especially as the cost 
of wind plus solar plus battery starts to take a nosedive and it becomes a lot more economical. And we don't hear those buzzing electrons along the way. It was the biggest story in the country until that whole impeachment topic came along. Last week began with climate protests, a big U.N. summit in New York. And we're continuing that climate change conversation on today's show with a panel hosted by the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, recorded during Climate Week. My guests are former Colorado Governor Bill Ritter, who now works on state energy policy, sustainability consultant Catherine Greener of Boulder, and former CEO in the energy and engineering spaces, Lee McIntyre. This next question is a choose-your-own-adventure. I have a question that's doom and gloom. We're going to get to it no matter what. And I have a question that's optimistic. What do you want first? I'll take doom and gloom. You'll take doom and gloom. All right. The novelist Jonathan Franzen recently wrote an article in The New Yorker that got people really heated on social media. The piece was called, What If We Stopped Pretending? The climate apocalypse is coming. To prepare for it, we need to admit that we can't prevent it. I'm not sure the climate change apocalypse is coming now because the models aren't clear enough. But I do, I am very concerned that we won't be able to keep under this arbitrary number one and a half degrees uh, from pre-industrial times to now because the U.S. isn't the problem. All the things we've been talking about today is all the innovation and the creativity and the money that we have to invest. The U.S. has really done, and we're wearing sweaters and we're turning our thermostats up and down and putting insulation in our houses. But I just did a little study on India. Guess what they're going to burn? Coal. A lot of friggin' coal. Indonesia's the same way. China's the same way. Different. Different economic development stage. They're going to burn a lot of coal. They got 256 coal plants under construction and 56 nuclear plants under construction. And they're all gigawatt, tend to be gigawatt each plant. So the arithmetic there doesn't, those curves aren't going to cross for a while. So I, I really like what the U.S. is doing. What do you think, Governor Ritter, what if we stop pretending the climate apocalypse is coming? To prepare for it, we need to admit we can't prevent it. Yeah, so I, I read that article and I really disagreed with a premise inside that article is that at the time that we hit 1.5 degrees, there's nothing more we can do about climate mitigation. And that's really wrong. It's a volume of carbon in the air. There's so much that we can do. And, you know, that IPCC report that you have the countdown for, Catherine, that report, you know, gives you a date, and we're not going to hit that, right? We're not going to get to where we need to get to, according to that report. But there's time after that where there will be benefits to continuing to mitigate by reducing greenhouse gas emissions and doing it internationally. So, Do you think that what will be motivating people by that point is catastrophe? In other words, uh, is there a quickening that happens the worse the storms get, the higher the temperatures get, the drier the droughts get. Yeah, it's interesting, and, and maybe coming from uh, the perspective of a person who served in public life, uh, I do think the political conversation has been very unhelpful. And so I think there are some things happening where the political conversation is going to change from things being pushed up. And I think that could increase in a fairly dramatic way our efforts to mitigate. And, I'm not and, sure I know what you mean. 
I, th I think that they're millennials who think about this all the time. I think climate change went from not being mentioned in the 2012 presidential election to now being something that every candidate on the Democratic side has a plan on. In some places where they pull this, you know, it's somewhere in the top three and typically the top two issues. That was not the case 10 years ago. And so right now, Republicans in the United States Senate are caucusing to say, what is our climate solution? There's no place where Republican senators disagree with millennials more than the issue around climate change. But leadership on the part of the United States is the only thing, I think, that's going to keep us out of the gloom and doom. And that leadership's got to come from a solving of the political problem, the political wedge that's existed. And that's going to come, I think, from the Republican Party deciding this is a pretty important issue to the American people, and we have to have some solutions for it. All right. Catherine, to this question of whether Jonathan Franzen has it right. Um, sometimes it depends what day you ask me if I'm optimistic or pessimistic. Uh -huh. um, how about this day? How, how about this day? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little of both. Probably I lean more optimistic because in the end, we are all people. When I got into this work in the late 90s, I didn't even know how to spell environmentalist. And I came at it through interfaith work. It was about the concept of stewardship, and that went across all aspects of faith, no matter what your spiritual path was. And it goes to, right now, when you can't plant your fields because of unusual rains, it has nothing to do with politics. When your home gets flooded again for the second time in two years, and you live in fill-in-the-blank Houston or another place, it's not about your party when the fire comes and burns down your town, there is no political affiliations. And in fact, I'm writing a country song, and I don't listen to country, with a friend of mine who's also an industrial engineer. And we started off with the, the expression, this isn't red or blue, this is about me and you. Would, and you, I, would you sing it a little bit? Uh, no, I can't sing. But do you, do you have a tune yet? Not yet. That's her job. Give she it, sings. Okay, give us the lyric one more time. It's not about red or blue. This is about me and you. And that's really where I get optimistic because I think the human spirit, when we come together and hold hands and solve problems, we don't literally have to hold hands, um, <laughs> we can do things we never thought we could tomorrow as we sit here today. And that's where I get optimistic. I put my engineer hat on and realize that change is not linear, it's logarithmic. Temperature-wise, you know, it's a biological system that's like increasing. And so it's really important that we intervene in a system and think about this. That's where I get a little bit more pessimistic. And it makes me very, very sad because those of us in wealthier nations will be able to adapt better. And as we draw bigger boundaries around where we live, that makes my heart break even more because this is about me and you, not me and you and only where we live. So that's where I get a little bit more pessimistic because these are runaway systems that we've never studied. The scientists tell us, as you know, we take a deep breath in, the last time we, well, we humans never have breathed air at this concentration before of CO2. Congratulations, we're doing things no other homo sapiens have done. At, what were we at, 410 parts per million CO2? Oops. And I use, the parallel to if you're at the top of Vail Pass heading into Vail and realize you don't have brakes, the last thing you do is step on the gas. And we can look at our CO2 
like we're burning through our carbon budget is like we're stepping on the gas. So even if we took our foot off the gas, understood it, and tried to slow down so we understood the systems and we could prepare for it, you know, I get a little less pessimistic. But we don't know what we don't know. And that's the scary part. Well, Lee set this up perfectly for us <laughs> to end on something optimistic then. <laughs> Good choice, Lee, on the Choose Your Own Adventure. Would you each tell me something that you have encountered that gives you hope in the face of climate change? Well, during the Nixon administration, I observed a Republican administration and Congress at that time for two years passed the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, created something that became the EPA. So the fact that we've split now between Republicans and Democrats, whether climate change is real or not, is just absurd and very, very disconcerting. It's the opposite of joining hands and working together on, on the problem. But that's something I observe, so it makes me hopeful that some leader could emerge that could get us all to be talking about the science of it and these logarithmic curves. Population is the underlying cause for all the things we're talking about. When I was born, it was 2.9 billion people. It's seven and a half billion now. It's heading for 10. Some people think it'll level off at 10 or 11 because women will move to cities and will urbanize and they'll have less babies. And so there's all this sort of theory, but we don't really know. Governor yeah. Ritter? What gives you hope? Um, interestingly, population. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, because I have four kids, and uh, so I, I did my own thing in populating. Uh, but they are between the ages of 33 and 26, and they're really focused on this. They care a great deal about this issue. And, and is that because their dad is? No, no, no. Their peer group, their peer group does as well. My oldest boy works for the Nature Conservancy and, and is a committed sort of conservationist environmentalist, and he comes at it in his own way, in his own right. It has nothing to do, I think, with me having served in office, but watching him, that's one thing. But, that, but my other three kids, in spite of the fact they're not in that field, I, I watch their peers, and I listen to them in conversation. Uh, they, they're making decisions around their future that we should have been making for them some time ago, but we didn't. So I have a lot of hope because I do think that there is an excitement and an energy that is changing how we view this. And so I, I, my kids are the things that gives me the most hope that this is going to be solved. Catherine Greener, your last name implies your optimism. Greener. <laughs> I, have, I have a friend who says I come self-branded. Um, <laughs> he's in advertising. Um, something in my lifetime that gives me hope. It's called the internet. I remember when I started engineering school, my dad taught me how to use a slide rule. I was like, well, why do I have to do this? Because I was using that thing that was called a calculator. He says, because you're going to need this because you're going to be an engineer. You know, I have that slide rule in a very lovely place. Never used it. But we think about that we have more computing power in, we call them phones, even though they're not phones because no one makes phone calls. <laughs> But how that has permeated our lives, our information to technology, changed social fabrics, changed me, all the things, how we shop, how we do things, how we read in such a short period of time. And if we can do that, think about when it's talking about, you know, we talk about the planet, 
but it's really our home versus our planet from a lexicon. And if we know that it's at risk, then what we can do, given the tools that we also have to stay connected. And then from a people side, I'm gonna go back and, and say, the youth and their ability to organize, communicate, network, and move this, because it is their future. And it talks about the availability of food supplies, jobs, you know, all the type homes, the things that are really important as you get older, and their ability to mobilize and communicate passionately and effectively also gives me hope. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Catherine Greener, Bill Ritter, and Lee McIntyre on our climate change panel recorded at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science during Climate Week. Thanks to our hosts, the Museum's Institute for Science and Policy and the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Michael Elizabeth Sackis produced today's show with audio engineers Matt Hers and Luis Higa. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.